if you guys want to find that, John 3. It's a passage you know well. You've heard it. You know this story. And we'll go from chapter, excuse me, verse 1 through verse 17, I think. Long passage, so stay with me, sorry. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going, and so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we ask that you would speak powerfully through a familiar passage. Yeah, that we who think we know so well would find that your spirit is speaking a thing that is unique this morning. Yeah, that your gospel would be made new for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Nicodemus, everybody's favorite Pharisee, or everybody's second favorite Pharisee. Paul, obviously, is our first favorite, right? He wrote a lot. We like Paul. We don't want to upset Paul. Um, we all know Nicodemus, though, right? He's like the only other Pharisee whose name we actually know. Everybody else is just called generically Pharisees, right? We don't really want to learn their names, but we know Nicodemus. We know his story. We know this passage, or at least we think we do. We know it so well, like we've got it kind of figured out, but 
John is saying kind of a mouthful from the beginning. He's filling us in on some important stuff. He says that Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and put aside everything you think you know about Pharisees. He's not just any Pharisee, John says. He's a member of the the Jewish ruling council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, you've heard it called. John's trying to say from the start, Nicodemus is a big deal. Nicodemus is important and influential, right? And if you didn't realize that, right, like here's just a little bit of Nicodemus's resume. Nicodemus started studying the scriptures when he was a little boy. Jonathan and I, we went to seminary. It took us about three and a half years. Some people it takes four. Some people are going through it fast and they do it in three, right? Other than that, my education didn't really center, formally at least, around faith or scripture. Nicodemus, from the time he was just a little boy, his entire education revolved around this. It was built around it. He spent his entire life memorizing verses, not just memorizing verses, though, memorizing entire scrolls of Old Testament scripture. He is educated. He is brilliant and gifted, and that's the only way you get to keep being in school that long. He's gifted and it's obvious. He knows the law and the prophets inside out. Historians say, uh, generally they agree, that Nicodemus would have come from a wealthy and aristocratic family, very central to the Jewish culture, very influential and powerful. This is the kind of people he comes from and that's part of what has allowed him to be so well-educated. He has lived a privileged and upper-class life. That's the reality of Nicodemus. And on top of all of this, The man has steadfastly committed his life to holiness. He's a Pharisee. This is who he is. And that guy, wealthy, brilliant, educated, powerful and influential, holy, righteous, a righteous man in the eyes of his people, shows up in the middle of the night to talk to Jesus of Nazareth at the house he's staying at. He's got some questions. Jesus, the uneducated carpenter from Galilee, who's been stirring up controversy in Israel in recent days. Yeah, John's trying to say, it's a bit of a surprise. We didn't see this conversation happening. It was normally going to take, take place somewhere else, right? We think we know Nicodemus, but there's a little bit more beneath the surface, right? And the other thing we tend to think we know very well, we understand what Jesus is saying when he says, you must be born again. We know those words, right? They are thrown around in our culture so often and in the church so often we know them inside out, right? Or at least we think we do. The the thing about that that phrase is that it, it comes with so much baggage, There are so many things that come along with the idea of born again. You hear that phrase, born again, and something comes to mind, most likely a very particular experience where you came to faith, an experience where your life began to change dramatically, where you began to believe, where you sensed the Spirit somehow drawing you toward Jesus. Everything began to realign. Everything began to change You were born again, we would say. But then, there's this thing that happened in the 70s and the 80s, and that phrase took on a political meaning. 
Suddenly, just like the word evangelical in our day is being thrown around in political circles, born again was an important phrase, right? You have all of these politicians who are falling all over themselves, making sure that they have a story of coming to faith that is similar to yours because they need you to know that they are a legitimate and credible believer and follower of Jesus so that you know that as a credible believer and follower of Jesus, you can vote for them. They need you to know that they are born again. And thus came about this whole way of understanding the phrase. To be born again in our culture means to be saved. It means to have come to faith, to be a true believer, and to be a devoted, committed worshiper. Okay? All of that is valid to an extent. That's absolutely the case. Jesus is getting at that. The problem is... You have to think about who he's talking to. Nicodemus, in his Jewish context, in his culture, has already had that experience. Nicodemus's life has changed. Nicodemus is as real as it gets. He is as serious a follower as there can be. He's a worshiper of Yahweh, and he's committed his entire life to it. And yet, Jesus is telling him there's still something else that has to happen. For you to enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is dumbfounded at hearing all of this. Because if ever there was anybody who knew, it was Nicodemus. And here is Jesus speaking to a person just like you and me who says, I, I have this experience. I've been through this. I've lived this. And Jesus is saying, you, you think you know, but you don't know. He's looking at Nicodemus, and, and he's telling him this. And it, if ever anybody in their culture knew, right? It's, it's the, the, the kind of phrase we use now. Like, there's this new restaurant, and everybody likes it, or at least who have been, right? But not everybody knows about it yet. And there's this sort of feeling we have, the same way we feel about bands, right? When we know about it and everybody else does it, there's this intimate connection we feel. If you know, you know, right? And if ever anybody could say that, that's Nicodemus, he has spent his entire life giving himself, devoting himself to study so that he knows. And Jesus is saying, you don't know. That's what he says directly. You're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand. You don't even know. And the thing we have to recognize is that John is leaving this story not just for non-believing people who don't know Jesus yet but maybe want to. John is, is leaving this story here for the church. He's leaving this story for people like Nicodemus, who call themselves believers, who know people like you and me. And he wants us to hear Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is too profound. The gospel is simply too beautiful for you to have yet understood it fully. You think you know, but you don't know. There is more you have yet to see. This is the thrust of what, what is happening, right? A few weeks ago at, at small group, uh, we're, we're sitting around, uh, and in my group, normally we'll pray, and people will share about what's going on in their lives and how we can pray for them. And as somebody's sharing, they use the phrase, it feels like we're always putting out fires at our house. Meanwhile, my son is sitting at the table, finishing his dinner across the room. And he lets that phrase kind of bounce around in his head for about 30 seconds. And he looks over at me with this concerned look on his face. And he says, 
Dad, why do they have so many fires at their house? Like, what is going on? Like, don't they realize these things can be prevented? <laughs> I.e., Smokey the Bear, like, whatever applies in the forest must apply here, right? They can prevent these things. Somebody needs to help them, right? He's concerned. This is a problem, Dad. And that's the way we see Nicodemus in this moment. That's the way we've been taught to read this sometimes. Nicodemus is the guy who takes everything just a little too literally. Nicodemus hears what Jesus says, and he says, he says, now, surely you don't mean that I enter back into my mother's womb. People goes, oh, man, he's going all literalistic. What an idiot. Forget what you think you know about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not dumb. He's smarter than me. He's smarter than us. He knows the scriptures inside out, and he knows the language Jesus is using. And he's being facetious in this moment. This is Nicodemus' way of saying, listen, I know you don't mean this. I know you're not being ridiculous and saying that I'm supposed to literally be born again. But while Nicodemus knows that's not it, he knows what it isn't to be born again, but he's not so sure what it actually is. And he's pressing. How can this be, he will say, multiple times in the conversation. It's like he's saying to Jesus, would you speak plainly, man? You never speak plainly. I just want you to speak plainly. Jesus doesn't do that. But here in this passage, right, Jesus begins to lay things out in a more familiar way to Nicodemus, right? He uses terms that Nicodemus knows well. He says, no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Now, to us, it's just like, okay, that, that didn't seem to get much clearer, but for Nicodemus, it did. Remember, Nicodemus knows the scriptures, and he knows, Jesus knows this. He knows that Nicodemus will have read the scroll of Ezekiel. In fact, he probably memorized it. And he knows, he knows Ezekiel 36. And so, when he says, you must be born of water and the spirit, he realizes this is going to come to mind. Ezekiel 36 goes kind of like this. God is speaking to Israel, and he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Water and spirit have this connection. And it's not just in Ezekiel. It's in Isaiah. You could even say it's in Genesis 1. You could say it's in Exodus. Water and the spirit, there is this unique connection in the scriptures. He knows that Nicodemus realizes that, right? He's using something more familiar to speak to him. But keep in mind, not only that, he knows Nicodemus is aware of the controversy that is stirring elsewhere, of this other person who's on the fringes of Jewish society right now, John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing all these people that are coming to him, left and right, and droves they're coming to him. And Nicodemus knows about that controversy as well. People are being baptized. John says it's a baptism of, of repentance. One's coming after him, he says, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. But John says his baptism is for repentance. And Nicodemus knows what John is doing and is very familiar with baptism, by the way. I don't know how you understand baptism or what you think. It was not new. John was not the first person baptizing. In Jewish world, baptism is common. Nicodemus has seen it most of his life. Any new convert who decides they want to live according to the law, they want to be a worshiper of Yahweh, they want to live this life, to enter into this covenant, they would have been baptized. Differently than we do, they would have 
into the water. It's this interesting, beautiful picture where they spread their arms and their fingers, and it's like they want the water to touch every part of themselves. The idea being this, God is cleansing. God is changing their life. They're turning from this one way they used to live, and now they're giving themselves completely to the law. This is what it means for so many of them. When Jesus says you must be born of the water, he's talking about baptism, and he's talking about this cleansing work. He's talking about repentance. This is a central idea in Jewish culture, baptism and repentance. And in Lent, we spend all this time talking about these things, penitence and repentance. And I'm sure most of you don't use those archaic-sounding words very often in conversation. That's just the reality of it. These aren't words that are very common for us. And honestly, they're words that might kind of bother you a little bit, that make you a little uncomfortable because the ways you've seen them used. But repentance is not what so often comes to mind when you think of it. We've, we hear the word repent, and we think of the guy with a sign on the street screaming at you, repent, right? And so repent means stop doing bad stuff. Just stop doing bad things, please. That's it. That's what repent means for most people. But repentance goes far deeper than that. Repentance is, is not just not doing something. Repentance is choosing to do something better, truer. Choosing to give your life to something lasting. It's reorienting my entire life around the kingdom that Jesus has established. That's repentance as he's teaching it. Repentance is searching out what drives and motivates me, what satisfies me, and asking whether what I find is actually Jesus or something else, because repentance means I'm supposed to be building my life around something new entirely. Repentance is something more than we realized. But the problem is, Nicodemus is like, you know, he's a Pharisee. He's kind of like the model of repentance in their culture. Like, he gets it. This is who he is. He feels comfortable with what's being talked about here. And Jesus is still telling him this. You need to be born of the water. But here's the thing we need to hear. This is what Nicodemus has to hear and recognize, and this is what we have to recognize. Repentance isn't an event. And I think we've been taught to see it that way. Repenting is like this sort of event. It's a thing that happened at some point in your life, right? But repentance isn't that. It's not something you did in the past. Repentance is not something you do for one season of the year, like in Lent. Repentance is not something you do when you've come to like the end of your rope and you realize something has to change. Repentance is not just the thing you do when you've done something wrong. Repentance goes far deeper than that. Repentance teaches us that you don't get to come to faith just once. You don't. Repentance is coming to faith again and again. Repentance is reminding myself what I believe again and again. Repentance means every day I wake up, I come to faith. I choose to believe this thing again in the midst of a whole new set of circumstances because my circumstances are always changing and I'm having to constantly reorient my life and remind myself what I believe despite the shifting circumstances. 
I'm having to choose to do this over and over again. And that doesn't mean that you get saved over and over again. It doesn't mean you need to get baptized over and over again. That's not at all what I'm saying. Repentance means over and over again. Every day of my life, I'm coming to faith again. I'm waking up and giving myself to this thing that I believe. I'm giving myself to the kingdom, and I am putting my faith completely into Jesus and not into myself and what I'm capable of every day of my life. This is repentance. It's more than just not doing bad things. And again, like Nicodemus might feel pretty good if Jesus had stopped there. You must be born of the water. Okay, good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. That all makes sense, but Jesus goes a step further. He says, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. And then Jesus gets all philosophical and it makes everybody uncomfortable. It's like, what, what, what is he doing? What just happened? Here we go. Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Again, Nicodemus, not dumb. He knows exactly what Jesus is doing. Maybe you know this. You might have heard us say this before. Maybe you don't. If you don't, that's okay. What's cool about both Hebrew and Greek, there's a lot of things that are very different about these languages. So different. One of the cool things that is the same is that in both Hebrew and Greek, the words for wind and spirit are the same. They're identical. In Hebrew, it's ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. They both mean wind or spirit, right? And so Jesus makes this statement. He says, you must be born of the water and the spirit. And then he says, you know, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't understand it. You don't know where it's going. But you feel it. You sense it. You hear it. And you know it's there. The wind blows wherever it pleases. In essence, there's all this play on words that happens all the time in Hebrew and Greek as a result of this. And so Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. And then he says, you know, the Spirit does whatever it pleases. The Spirit blows wherever it pleases. You can't control the Spirit, Jesus is saying. You can't predict the Spirit's next move. Jesus knows this from firsthand experience. We talked about it last week, right? Jonathan's in Matthew 4. There's this beautiful moment, right? Jesus' baptism, the clouds part. God himself is speaking his, his word of approval, validating Jesus' ministry. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? The spirit descends on Jesus. It's this beautiful moment of divine blessing. And then immediately afterward, Matthew says, and the spirit that had just entered into him led him out into the wilderness, into the wastelands of Israel to fast and to be tempted by the enemy. Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit, and immediately he says, but you can't control the Spirit. You cannot predict the Spirit's next move. You don't know what's going to happen. And if you're born of the Spirit, that means you're yielding control of the whole of who you are, to who you are becoming, right? All to the Spirit. You're yielding yourself over and over again. And that means if you actually yield control of your life to the Holy Spirit, you might find that one day you are living a life you never imagined for yourself. That's certainly been the case for me. You will find the Spirit will take you places you could not have predicted that don't make a lot of sense to you. I love what uh, Barbara Brown, Brown Taylor says um, She's a, a preacher and has a lot more years preaching than I do, and she has a way with words, and I think she says this well. She's talking about 
Jesus' statement. You must be born again. This idea of a second birth, a new birth. And she says this. The second time around, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the mother is the spirit. No, you don't need to enter back into your mother. No, you need a new mother is what Jesus is saying. The second time around, the mother is the spirit. And again, that might sound kind of crazy. That might sound like real Wendell Berry or something. But he's saying something powerful. To be born of the Spirit means you have a new mother. And this is the reality. Whoever your mother is, you take on her attributes. You begin to, you know, say things the same way she does. You look like her. You tell stories the same way she does. Maybe you, you laugh like her, right? That's something about your parents. People are all the time saying, man, the older you get, man, I, I keep seeing your mom in you. I keep, I keep hearing your mom in you, these sorts of things. You have a new mother, the spirit. And here's the interesting thing. You, you don't get to choose your parents. You don't get to choose the kind of lifestyle they can afford to give you. All of that is chosen for you. That's the reality. Everything is just given to you. You don't have a choice in the matter. You don't choose to exist. You don't decide to exist. All of that just happens to you. And Jesus is saying, so it is with the Spirit. When you give yourself to the Spirit, you don't get to choose everything. You don't get to decide. You don't have a choice in the matter. All of these things are just given to you. To be born of the Spirit means to yield yourself to the Spirit's control and to let the Spirit labor and groan in you as you become what God always desired for you to be. Let the Spirit be your mother. Let the Spirit labor and groan in you. And he's saying this to Nicodemus, a man who has labored his entire life toward holiness. And he's saying, stop laboring and let the Spirit labor in you. You must be born of the water and the Spirit. It's this beautiful picture. Let the Spirit labor in you. And Nicodemus, though, is very curious, very inquisitive. His questions still aren't answered. He still doesn't understand it. Of course he doesn't, right? And so he asks again, How can this be? What are you talking about? What exactly do you mean? And in one of like, the most backhanded compliments ever, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, You are the teacher of all Israel. And Nicodemus is like, Yes, I am impressive. And then Jesus finishes, And you still don't understand. You think you know, but you don't know. You don't actually know. And I think... What John is trying to do in preserving this story for us is remind us that Nicodemus is not the only one. He wants us to understand this. And, okay, listen, I know we're, we're gonna have to, you're going to have to go here with me for a minute. This is going to get kind of weird for a minute. We're going to start talking about grammar. And some of you guys are like, I stayed up too late last night, and that's bad news when we're talking about grammar. I get it. You might start to nod off, or you might get angry at me. Why are we talking about grammar? Let's talk about grammar there for a minute. Here's what happens. Jesus does something interesting in the passage. The whole time, predictably, that he's having this individual conversation with Nicodemus, we're talking about singular conversation, right? Two people talking in the second person singular. <clears throat> Excuse me. Saying, you and you. This is the way the conversation is going. But did you notice in verse 11 that changes? Suddenly, Jesus says, we speak 
of what we know, of what we have seen. But still, you people, you don't accept it. Suddenly, Jesus is no longer a you. He's no longer an I. It's no longer a singular. He's now a we. He's talking about we. And he's calling Nicodemus a part of a group. You people, the translation says. This is one of those proud southern moments. Jesus just said y'all in Greek. That's what just happened. The Greek has a second person plural. Unlike English, but we in the South know there should be a second person plural. We say, y'all, you all, whatever you want to say, that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, we know, we have seen and we've told you, but you all, y'all, y'all don't believe it. You don't accept it, he says. And obviously that could probably, most likely refers to Jesus and the disciples and his followers, these people who've given themselves to this thing he's teaching. Versus the Pharisees, the Jewish religious authorities, they're y'all, right? But John's not even talking about that. John's not trying to help us see the conflict between Jesus and his disciples versus the Pharisees and the Jewish ruling authorities. John's telling us a story about a conversation between two individual men. Why would he preserve this little thing, this little change in verb tense? Why would he do it? I know, guys, it's grammar and it's boring. Stay with me. I think John has Jesus breaking the fourth wall. That's weird. That's really weird. You know what the fourth wall is. It happens. I think John has told the story this way so that Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus, right? And then suddenly, unexpectedly, like Jim Halpert. You see that smirk on his face? And he kind of turns and he looks toward the camera. And now he's speaking to you. Y'all. You. John tells it this way. Because it's not just Nicodemus that needs to hear this. Why don't you all believe? Like Ferris Bueller, he looks into the lens and he says, you weren't expecting this, but I'm talking to you. John has preserved it this way. Jesus isn't just talking to Nicodemus, he's talking to me. We've been saying this, we've seen this, we've told you this, and still you don't accept it. It's like Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, you have questions. And you want answers. You want to understand. You want to know more all the time. And the problem is what you know, you still don't actually believe. You want to know more. You want to understand more. The problem is you know plenty that you don't actually believe still. You still haven't given yourself to it in the same kind of way that you claim you have. It's a hard thing to hear. You think you know, but... You don't know. And he's saying it to us. But Jesus does something beautiful. He decides to lay it on us anyway. It's like, you're not really ready for this, but he's going to give it to you anyway. And it's like the smoothest telling of the story you've ever heard. In just a few sentences, Jesus is going to lay out the gospel in this beautiful way. He says, no one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And there it is, right back to chapter 1. Y'all remember how chapter 1 of John starts. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word has taken on flesh and dwelled among us, right? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, I know you don't understand what I'm talking about. All this wind spirit talk, it doesn't make any sense unless you have lived with the Spirit eternally. Three in one. It's only the Son who could make sense of all of this for you. And so Jesus says, this is why I have come. 
I love this, this statement Dale Bruner makes. He's a commentator and a, a gifted preacher. Um, and Bruner says, uh, this is the moment when Nicodemus realizes what he thought he knew about Jesus was wrong. His first words are, we know you are a teacher, right? God is with you. That's the only way you could do these things. And Bruner says, Nicodemus realizes here that Jesus isn't just a teacher that God is with. Jesus is God with us. And that is not what Nicodemus expected. It's easy to kind of like dismiss, oh, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, God is with them. He's a good guy, right? He's a good teacher. He's a, another in a long list of rabbis who are gifted. But no, now he's realizing something more. He's God with us. Cue Nicodemus stunned silence, okay? He's overwhelmed in this moment. And while he sits quietly, no more questions to be asked, Jesus just keeps on talking. And he uses an image from a story that any Pharisee knows very well. It's from the book of Numbers, which, contrary to popular belief, is not just about numbers. Guys, check it out. Cool stories there. It's bizarre, though, what Jesus is doing. It's kind of a bizarre story that he's introducing into the conversation. It's about snakes, right? Maybe you caught that. So in the story... Israel rebels against God. That's not the bizarre part. That's what happens all the time. Israel rebels a lot. What's bizarre is there's this terrible plague of snakes that enters into the camp. And the people of Israel are being bitten. People cannot be healed. They don't know how to, to heal people. They don't know how to pray for them. It's not working. People are dying. Moses is desperate. The people are desperate. And so they cry out to God. And God gives Moses directions. He says, I want you to to cast a bronze snake, to make this bronze snake, and then to attach that bronze snake to the top of a long pole. And I want you to hold it high in the air, and you tell the people of Israel, if they look at the snake, they will be healed. And then Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man who came from heaven must be lifted up, that all may have eternal life in him. Strange stuff, I know. Why is Jesus talking about snakes now? Why would he introduce this? I mean, the wind spirit stuff was crazy, and now we're talking about snakes. Like, like, what is he doing here? But he knows Nicodemus, and he knows Nicodemus' background, and this is speaking powerfully to him. Jesus is saying, just like God saved Israel from those snakes using a snake, God is about to save Israel from death using death. By his own death. That's what's about to happen. God is about to use the curse to rid them of their curse. That's what's about to happen. God's about to bring the curse on himself so that they could, they could be healed, so that they could have eternal life. And that, Jesus says to Nicodemus, that is the answer to your question, how? How can this be? How, how does this make sense? Only if that is true. How can someone be born again? What does that even mean, Jesus? Speak plainly, right? And Jesus just systematically walks through. It means being washed. Washed of who you once were. Reorienting your entire life around this kingdom and around Jesus at the center of it. Being born again means giving yourself over and over again. Coming to faith over and over again, day after day, in the midst of your changing circumstances. It means yielding your life to the control of the Spirit, knowing that 
You don't get to predict or know where it's going to take you. It means believing into Jesus and not just knowing more about him all the time. It means continually looking upon the crucified Lord Jesus, as uncomfortable as it makes us sometimes. You have to continue to look. And that's what's happening at the table every time we come. It's an opportunity to reorient our lives around the cross and not around whatever else we might have been building it around. That's why we come every week and not just every once in a while. We want to reorient our lives constantly around the cross of Jesus. Every time we come, this is what's happening to us. We come back to the crucified and broken body of Jesus, back to his poured out blood. The band can, can come. I was, I was thinking about this this week. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that every time we do this, we come to the table, he says we proclaim the crucifixion. We proclaim the Lord's death, Paul says, until he comes. Every time we're doing this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. And I don't know if you've ever asked the question of why we would want to do that. Why would we proclaim the Lord's death over and over again? Is it once enough? Why would we want to proclaim the death of the man we say is the Messiah? Why would we want to proclaim the death of the one we say is our Savior? Why wouldn't Paul say something like, every time we do this, we proclaim the resurrection. Every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's victory. He doesn't. He says, every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death. Because that's what the Corinthians need to hear, and it's what we need to hear. You can't get away from the crucifixion. You need to build your life around what's happening at the cross. Paul says this because the truth is, without the crucifixion, Christianity sounds like every other faith you've ever heard of. Without the crucifixion, the resurrection is just like a slick illusion. And Jesus is just another snake oil salesman who's promising you a miracle cure. Without the crucifixion, the resurrection just doesn't stand the same way. Fleming Rutledge uh, says it really well. She says, uh, without the crucifixion, the resurrection is just another spiritual tale about a charismatic figure. But the crucifixion tells you what you thought you knew about God. It's not what you thought. God is not who you thought he was. The crucifixion undoes everything you thought you knew about God. It reorients it all. We've heard a lot of spiritual tales about charismatic figures. But Jesus isn't just another man-made God. He isn't just another immortal deity who has power even over death. This is the way we always imagined God to be. And instead, he is a God who's decided to make himself mortal and fragile and vulnerable. He's a God who's chosen intentionally to die a humiliating and shameful death because he will stop at nothing to give himself to us. John says, for God so loved the world. And that is a hard thing for us to fathom. But the table reminds us again and again. The invitation is to come, gather around the cross once more. Come, gather around the broken body of Jesus. And remember what God is actually like. Rid yourself of all the ideas you might have had about God before. He is nothing like any God you have ever imagined.
He's more. And so we invite you in this moment. Uh, as the band plays, come and, and take a cup. Come and tear off a piece of bread. And you'll move back to your seats. Just hold on to everything. Hold on to the elements, and we'll come back and lead you through it. But the, the invitation is to come and let the table renew your faith. As you partake, come and approach Jesus once more. Come to faith all over again. That's the invitation every time we come. Come and reorient your life around the cross of Jesus. Come and be born again all over again. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness to us, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says. And you're better than any God we've ever imagined or conjured for ourselves. You're more humble. You're more self-giving. And your love, it goes to depths that no one else's can. And we're grateful for that, God. We pray uh, that our lives will be changed in the hearing of all of this. And be born again in us. Continue to change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.